I had a lot of things to share last night that I didn't get to. I'm going to try and um, work some of that into what I say today. And um, I will mention again, I mean, it, I feel so silly to do this, but I think I'm going to because I think it might help. Um, John Foreman of Switchfoot is my brother-in-law. <laughs> and we're very close. And we've been texting each other in the last 48 hours. And if you have the love for Switchfoot, um, maybe that could help you what to follow up on me in some way. It just feels so... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But okay, so there's, there's that. And um, yeah, whenever you're dozing off, you can think, uh, uh, when I make that sound, does that mean anything to you? Okay, so that's meant to live. So it's like, no, no, uh, uh, I'm going to keep listening to him because he's tight with Switchfoot. Um, also, it occurred to me, and I believe that a lot of what I'm going to say is going to find itself tying into the concerns, the worries, um, and the hopes of uh, the last 48 hours, two days. And, I, and something I said that I tweeted that seemed to help people is no election um, can prevent me from trying to love my neighbor. No election can prevent me from trying to love my neighbor. And I mean, not only can no election prevent me from trying to love my neighbor, but it's very important that I don't let an election um, define for me who my neighbor is and what my obligations toward my neighbor are to imagine my neighbor with grace and deep hospitality, deep empathy, deep hope. Um, we have fear going on. I said last night, and it seemed to resonate, that mad is a form of sad. We demonize when we don't know what to do with our despair. But we don't have to demonize. At any time, we can turn that around. I'm going heavy right away, and I feel kind of bad about that. But, but maybe there's some hope in these little aphorisms that I'm placing before you. Um, okay, to switch it up just a bit, I will note that um, we all have, um, and I'm thinking about this over here, writing down what we want to remember, um, that question, what am I going to remember and why? What am I going to hold on to here in this interaction with this person? What story am I going to tell about myself in my response to people whose vote horrifies me? What story am I going to tell about myself in my response? Yeah, I'm just throwing all these questions out there before I kind of get going. These are important questions. Figuring out what's in there, Jesus tells us, out of the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. And to figure out what's going on in our hearts, we can look hard at our own language, our own speech, our own way of characterizing other people. So that question of what's in there is a big one. Um, there's a songwriter named um, Peter Case, who I'm guessing most of you haven't heard of. Um, but Bruce Springsteen once said of Peter Case that he was only listening to Peter Case. What are you listening to, Springsteen? This was 92. He said, I only listen to Peter Case these days. Peter Case is likely 
He's always on the road headed to another joint, always touring. When I say joint, I mean venue. I don't mean that he smokes pot. I'm quoting Bob Dylan. It's, um, what's that song, Tangled Up in Blue. Still on the road headed for another joint. We always didn't feel the same, but we just saw it from a different point of view, Tangled Up in Blue. Really great song. Anybody know Tangled Up in Blue by any chance? Okay, Bob Dylan, my goodness. His royal Bobness. Anyway. Springsteen wants it. So Case is not a, um, a wealthy man, but he's a great songwriter, and people like Springsteen love him. And um, love him. <laughs> I've got to back away. People from Springsteen, people like Springsteen seem to admire him. Of course, if Springsteen loved him, Springsteen would be looking after him, I would think. I'm not trying to hate on Springsteen. I'm just trying to um, watch it with my own use of the word love. Um, but Peter Case once had a songwriting class that I was in. Um, I'm not exactly a songwriter myself, but I would love to be. I try to be a good writer, try to be a good rememberer in everything that I'm up to. And he was explaining, here's how it's done with songwriting. You are like a magpie. You are like a bird that picks up materials here and there, overheard conversations. Um, wise sayings, something you might have read in a novel, and you keep a notebook or a napkin. Tom York of Radiohead has explained this process as well, that he's always writing things down um, and seeing if he might be able to put them in a song at some point. And Peter Case tells the story of being at a, um, a party with a lot of songwriters, and somebody said, um, somebody was asking somebody else for some money. And the person he was talking to said, I would help you if I could, but I'm broke. I'm broker than the Ten Commandments. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I'm broke. I'm broker than the Ten Commandments. And when Peter Case heard that, his first impulse was to get out a piece of paper and write that down and see if he could put that in a song. And he looked around and he saw that everybody else there had all also heard it. And they were trying to write it down to kind of get to it. First, I mean, this is all, I do it with, if I hear somebody use a word that sounds impressive to me, I'm probably going to try to use that word myself in conversation later on. If any of you have been listening to the radio and somebody makes an argument in a particular direction and then you um, find yourself saying the exact same thing and you're not exactly acknowledging to yourself that you are copying them, kind of, I think we do that all the time. I think, I think all eloquence is borrowed. I think we're always doing that. But again, part of what I was talking about last night and part of what I want to talk about now is to be really conscious of the ways we do that, to really know what our debts are, to really try to figure out why did I get angry just then or why am I afraid now? What's in there? What's in there? Um, but Peter Case also, when he was talking, he said to the group, um, I was probably in my 30s at that stage, but most were 18, a little bit older, somewhere between 18 and 22. He said to that group, how old are you? And they, you know, 19, 20, and he nodded and he said, you're old enough. You've seen enough. You've already gathered enough material. You've seen enough to write some amazing songs. 
but the question always is, have you seen what you've seen? You've seen enough, you've experienced enough, you've heard enough, but have you seen what you've seen? Have you heard what you've heard? Have you listened to your own life yet? Because there is no gathering your, well, gathering your wits. There is no gathering your wits until you kind of look at what's happened. Poet Carolyn Forche says we have to open up the book of what's happened and look hard at it. There's a, a saying um, attributed to Jesus. Um, oh, I know, now I'm in for it. it. It's from the Gospel of Thomas. I don't know if Jesus said it, but it's a very useful saying. That Jesus, it's very similar to things that Jesus says in the canonical Gospels as well. Um, Oh, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is within you. Um, but according to this saying, which may just be alleged to be a saying of Jesus, there's this, and I think it's a powerful saying. makes the similar point. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Whatever we make of that, it feels like a trustworthy saying to me. Very similar to out of the depths of the heart the mouth speaks. And if you believe in me, Jesus says, out of you will flow rivers of living water. How to keep on um, having flowing out of you rivers of living water when you're afraid or angry is the good work to be done in so many ways. So um, one way of thinking about what's in there, a great little phrase that I use sometimes, is um, what's in there is my attention collection. We, each of us, have an attention collection. And if there were fewer of us, I would say, now we're going to go around the room, and each of us is going to share a line, a sentence, a verse, it could be from a commercial, it could be from a Bonnie Vare song, it could be from Chance the Rapper, some line that's in there that you keep going back to. And it maybe arises in your mind unbidden at times. It could be something life-giving, but it could be something kind of sad that you sort of hear in there sometimes. We all have an attention collection. We all love particular things. We all have playlists. We all have songs, I suspect, that we put on, and it helps for some reason. Hands up if you have a song that helps you, just so I can kind of feel like we're a... <laughs> okay, so there's songs that we go to. Why? Why do we go to those songs? How do those songs... Why do they do that? Um, let me see here. I'm going to... the Victor Oh, here you go. The Victorian-era um, critic John Ruskin says, tell me what you like, and I'll tell you what you are. Tell me what you like, and I'll tell you what you are. And to be honest about what we like, to ask, I mean, I know with, I did mixtapes myself. Um, oh, when I had people that I admired, or I was curious about, or I was trying to get them to be willing to spend time alone with me. I would make mixtapes. It was kind of my form of, uh, it was my love language. And um, I think it always is. 
a love language of some sort. And of course, I would pretend, oh yeah, I just, I just kind of recorded these songs. I don't know, maybe you'll like them. Because I was fronting in those moments. Because I was pretending that it was just kind of haphazard. But it was kind of my whole heart that I was handing over. Um, and each song, especially the opening song, and everything, I mean, I would try and get the segues exactly right, all of it. It's a form of sharing. We do this, too, when we say, you should check this out. Has anybody ever said you should check this out with a YouTube video or any of it? When we do that, we act like it's no big deal, but we're, we're sharing our findings. We're sharing our attention collections. And sometimes we might really think, I, I think this is going to help you. Um, so we're always doing that in one way or another. You might not have ever given anyone a playlist or a mix CD, but you do have an attention collection. There, there's stuff in there. And it's worth looking at it and asking why. And um, asking if what's in your attention collection um, mostly confirms what you already think, or if you try to put things in there that challenge what you think. You don't want your attention collection to be an informational echo chamber. You want it to include things that um, bring you out of where you are. I mean, I, I think of the Bible as an attention collection, an inspired attention collection uh, that I call the Word of God that came together through the attentiveness of people guided by the Holy Spirit, I believe, over centuries. Um, yes, our attention collections. Okay, I'm going to keep going here. Tell me what you like, and I'll tell you what you are. Um, what do I like and why? Really thinking that one through is, an intensely, is as intensely telling as it would be to genuinely try to answer that profound question, what are you into? My attention collection is my book of common things, my working palette of lifelong recognitions. Not just my recognitions, but other recognitions. Um, a good novel, Harry Potter, is a feat of attentiveness. J.K. Rowling's offering, Harry Potter, I believe is a feat of attentiveness concerning human beings, relationships, all of it. Anybody into Harry Potter to a degree? Can you? Okay, so there's some Harry Potter enthusiasts. Um, I'm a Star Wars enthusiast. I'm a Doctor Who enthusiast. I'm a Breaking Bad enthusiast. Um, I'm a Radiohead enthusiast. And maybe none of the things I've said, or maybe we don't share those enthusiasms, but you have your own. And when people make fun of me for buying a Radiohead box set with vinyl, when I didn't even have a turntable. <laughs> I, they'll say, you know, it's like it's a religion to you. To which I said, well, I don't just like Radiohead. I believe Radiohead. I don't just like Harry Potter. I believe Harry Potter. I think J.K. Rowling is right. I think there is investigative heft to Harry Potter. I think it's a form of intelligence. So I, I think we all have these things. Maybe you're wondering if you could say that about the thing you watched on Netflix last night. I think we do believe the things we love. 
um, and I'm trying to encourage that connection. Um, they're everywhere, these means whereby we begin to see what we're seeing. That which was unnamed gets suddenly put into words by that great song. Oh, I didn't know I felt that. And then I heard this song, and that is how I feel. I'd love to do that too. I'd love to go around the room, and I guess I'm going to ask you to do it in your mind. Tell yourself the tale of a time when somebody else's voice, you saw your own voice in somebody else's voice, or you felt your own experience in a scene in a film, or an episode, or a song, or any of it. We're saturated with these things. We seek them out. We go looking for them. Why not hold them out with open hands? Why not be honest about what we love and why? That which was unnamed gets suddenly put into words. That heavy happening never justly described or illuminated in our hearing finally receives fresh articulation and gets brought into the light of clear expression. I remember Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins said that Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, is still what's going on. That was kind of a deep compliment for that album. It's a record of the time that is still our time. It's poetic because it's news that stays news. It keeps on being true. The classic is that which never stops being true. Classic rock song, classic play, classic film. It never stops saying what it has to say. We are collecting things that strike us that way, but maybe we could go further with it. A breakthrough occurs. And you have this line from um, Beck. Do we know Beck? Beck, on his first hit, Loser, he said, um, don't believe everything that you breathe, which I think is a proverb for our time. Don't believe everything that you breathe. Those things that have gotten in there, you don't always know how they got there but you have to look at it to decide whether or not that thing that you're saturated by is true in what it claims. So do you hear that as this call of critical, even prophetic discernment? Don't believe everything that you breathe. Can I get a nod from somebody like, yeah, I think I see what that's saying. Don't believe everything that you breathe. Okay, so with Shakespeare um, describing the work of poetry, and poetry, poetry is whenever um, things are made new by language, or even by dance. I think of responding to people poetically would be to make something new out of what might have just been a tired old, death-dealing, hateful situation, to think poetically of others. But here's Shakespeare on what the poet does. It's from Midsummer, Midsummer Night's Dream. It says, the poet bodies forth forms of things unknown. The imagination bodies forth forms of things unknown and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. So we had this thing that was an airy nothing. I don't even have words for it. But then poetry comes, or rock and roll comes, or hip hop comes, and suddenly um, that which was an airy nothing has been given a local habitation and a name. I tend to think that Beck, I don't know, but I think Beck is alluding to that on a song where it's at when he says, there's a destination a little up the road, a habitation 
in the town's unknown, a place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz and the get fresh flow. I think of jigsaw jazz and get fresh flow as ways of naming what poetry does. Oh, how we need it. Oh, how we go looking for it. Jeff Tweedy of Wilco said, when you go to a live musical performance, you don't go to be apart from people. You go to be a part of a group of people. I think that's what we're doing with Bible study, with church, with doing your homework in a coffee shop. You do actually want to be near the social pipeline, as it turns out. You're hoping sometimes that somebody might bother you while you're doing this thing. Have we had this experience, our desire to be social? To be social. Um, okay, I'm going to keep going. I have till 11, correct? What time is it right now? 10.35, okay. Um, I think because I believe... Well, let me just think here for a moment. Let me think about this. Hmm... Oh, I need to tell you about choose, choose your ancestors carefully. I, I need to, but I have been talking about that all along. Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man, um, African-American novelist, who loved Faulkner and Dostoevsky in lots of ostensibly not um, African-American artists. And there is a, a, a racist attitude that Ralph Ellison was supposed to his influences are supposed to be black people. And he always hated that. And in response to that, he said, look, um, I'm stuck with my, we're all of us. We're stuck with our relatives. And do what we will with our relatives. But we get to choose our ancestors. Stuck with our relatives, God bless them, love them, honor them. But we get to choose our ancestors. We have some agency. We have some choice. I get to read up on a poet from 500 years ago and think of her as my sister or my mother or my aunt. I get to have, mention that I teach in the prisons, and um, I share the farmer, philosopher, agrarian Wendell Berry with all of my students. And I shared Wendell Berry an essay called Two Economies with a student at uh, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. And he read it and loved it, and he said, Barry's really getting through to me. I guess I'm going to have to make him part of my pantheon of elders. He's going to be right up there with Tupac from now on. <laughs> Wendell Berry. And I loved that, because that way of thinking about it, it's like I have my quiver of articulation. I have my little bag of verbal havoc. Um, and I'm always adding to it, collecting words, collecting wise sayings. I get to choose my ancestors. Um, but of course, we have to choose our ancestors carefully. Because if all the people that we allow to be elders in our minds say the same thing, or only confirm whatever feeling I'm having that day, I might be in a kind of death cult when it comes to my ancestors. I, I always put it dramatically, I'm sorry. But it could be that I'm not letting anybody in. And I'm not allowing for relationship except for people who agree with me kind of thing. So I want to say mix it up with your pantheon of elders. And um, have people in there that might not agree with each other. Um, 
oh, it's important that your pantheon of elders, that your attention collection not be a monologue. If it is just a monologue, I think I'll put it dramatically again. You may as well be demon-possessed. Um, okay, so a little bit more, but I want to do a, little, a moment with the questions. Um, I want to, th okay, I've got to save that. Maybe that'll come up in the questions. But I want to say, too, because this came up in a, um, okay, that, there's no way that I can transition this easily. But looking hard at what's in there, our thoughts of God, our conceptions of God, that are sometimes our conceptions of God are nothing other than our worst relationships with people in authority. We project onto God sometimes our um, bad experiences with human beings. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to say it. For me, Jesus is the fullest presentation of God that we have. Um, Jesus is God for me. And um, I want to say that Jesus, yeah, if our conceptions of God are not Christ-like, um, I think the good news of the coming kingdom is that God is Christ-like. And I want to say that Jesus is not our protection from God's terror. Jesus is God's response to our terror. I'll say it again. Jesus isn't our protection from God's terror. Jesus is God's response to our terror, our anger, our fear, all of that. And one more quote before I say, before I ask for questions. And this quote is from um, Iris Murdoch, who had this to say of the difficult work of love. Love, Iris Murdoch tells us, is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Love is the extremely difficult realization, we have to undertake this realization every day, is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Love, and so art and morals, is the discovery of reality. Um, I want to say, too, that I'm in it for beauty. Um, that beauty is... Oh, no, I, need, I just need to save it. I need to save it, I think. But love, that work of discovering reality, that work of realizing that other people are real, that the inner drama in other people's hearts and minds is just as real as yours, is a work that we probably need to undertake where two or more are gathered. It takes a community, it takes a neighborhood to perceive reality. Um, and if we're not accustomed um, to allowing other people to show us what we're not seeing, um, we might not be deeply converted to the tradition called Christianity. Um, so this is the work, the work of consciousness, the work of realization, the work of having within our minds, within our attention collection, people who make us more aware of others 
rather than less.